Okay, so Romans chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off on Sunday. I'd like to ask you all a question. How many of you drove across the Deception Pass Bridge tonight? Just a show of hands. What were you thinking? I mean, why would you drive across that thing? It's first of all called the Deception Pass Bridge. I mean, that should tell us something right there. Think about how how crazy that is. And yet, how many of us cross that bridge and we never give it a second thought? I mean, you didn't tonight. Did any of you, as you approached the bridge, driving over from Anacortes, did anyone slow down and just go, I don't know, I'm not sure about this. And yet we go across and over that bridge all the time. I I do it almost daily. At 7.03 p.m. May 23rd, 2013, on a normal yet slightly congested Thursday evening, along the I-5 corridor near Mount Vernon, traffic came to a screeching halt. Many of you remember this. Three cars careened into the water as the Skagit River Bridge partially collapsed. A bridge that thousands upon thousands of people cross every single day going north and south on I-5, not even thinking about it. Just last week, the Bellingham Herald announced that the lawsuit is ongoing. Some blame the trucking company and their driver, whose semi apparently struck several overhead trusses as he crossed the bridge. Others blame the state of Washington for not properly maintaining that 58-year-old steel and truss structure. So we'll have to wait and see how that's going to come out. But it, it struck me today, in thinking all of this through, that we have just crossed a bridge. We have crossed a bridge so solid it cannot collapse. It is a bridge that spans the distance from condemnation to what Paul called so great a salvation. It's a bridge that we shouldn't have to think about, and yet oftentimes people do. People avoid it. People stand back from it. But in our study, we are now safely into the second section of Paul's letter to the saints gathered together there in Rome. The bridge is Romans 3.21 through 26. Built and buttressed by the arches of justification and redemption and propitiation, and these three solid arches support, reinforce the demonstration of God's righteousness. But we got to understand this. We cross that bridge by faith. It takes faith to get across. Faith is the vehicle, perhaps you could put it that way. And from this point on, verse 27 of chapter 3, all the way through the end of chapter 8, the focus is on believers in Jesus. This is a marvelous section. For those of you who have believed, followed Jesus for a long time, what it will be for you is a great encouragement, if not explanation, of faith. How it plays. How it works out in our lives. How it functions and affects and even emanates from us. This whole concept of faith is where we begin. And so picking up here at the end of verse 26, God did all these things so He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now we get rolling on faith. Where then is boasting, Paul writes. 
It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God of Jews only? Is He not of Gentiles also? Yes! Of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Father, I praise you for the law of faith. I praise you for the way that your law, that your word introduced and expounded upon and expanded faith even before, Lord Jesus, you came into the world. I thank you for what we can and have and will learn of faith from the law. And I pray pray we will understand tonight the, the dynamic of the two. But especially, Lord, increase our faith. In Jesus I pray. Amen. Where is the boasting in all of this? Paul asks. And it's a great question. Because his point is, once you've seen the bridge, the bridge of redemption and justification and propitiation, again, that is the demonstration, I really like all those words together, the demonstration of His righteousness, once we've seen that, all we can lay claim to is to receive it by faith. I didn't do it. You know, as with the Deception Pass Bridge, I wasn't there when it was built. I just benefit from it. I did nothing for it. And listen, the law was not given to develop pride and boastfulness. It wasn't given so people could say, See? See what I've done? See how good I am? Look at me as compared to the law. Because the reality is, anyone who tries to compare themselves to the law is an abject failure. No one, even the most religious of Israel, would stand up and say, I am flawless by the law. Oh, a couple maybe hinted at that. The rich young man who came to Jesus. I've done all these things. I've kept all these things. Yeah, well, Jesus left out the one about coveting. No one's perfect when compared to the standard of the law. The law was given. Understand this. The law of God was given to establish humble faith. And Paul will talk more about the giving of the law in Romans chapter 5. But it was for the establishment ultimately of faith. And we see this throughout. Psalm 25 verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble His way. Jeremiah 9.23 Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom... And let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You want to boast, boast in me. The Father says. But... Jeremiah the prophet later reported in Jeremiah 44 verse 10. The Lord saying, but they have not become humble, even to this day. 
nor have they feared, nor walked in my law or my statutes, which I have set before you and before your fathers. The law was given to introduce, to establish faith. A humble faith. I have a great confidence in the law of God. Not that it can save me because I can't keep it. But that the law of the Lord is perfect. And that the law of God does establish and strengthen and build up faith. Now Paul for his part, and you may recall this, back in about verse 8 of chapter 3, he mentions this. He had been blamed for introducing something new. One of the things that many in the Jewish community in the first century came against Paul for was, they said, you're you're teaching a new doctrine and it's heresy. You are not teaching the law. You're teaching somehow that that these outsiders are are, are okay too, that people can be saved. In fact, if you look back at verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Paul's saying, I never said that. You're missing the point of grace. Paul wasn't teaching a new doctrine. The gospel of grace through faith is not new. Was not new in the first century. It was just fulfilled. It had just come to fruition. But it is as old as, say, an old apple tree that produces new fruit. This old tree of the law built up and growing was now come to fruition and now suddenly is blossoming. By the crucifixion, by the redemption, the justification, the propitiation of Jesus at the cross, now it's blossoming. Now it's come to fruition. Now the establishment of faith by the law can explode into the fruitfulness of the followers of God. Paul doesn't see two disparate laws here. He doesn't see an old law and a new law. And I had to really get over this, by the way. Because I was trained up with this kind of mentality. Old covenant, new covenant. Now, now there is an old covenant and a new covenant. But that's not the Old Testament and the New Testament as so often it's understood today. People say, well, there's the Old Testament, but that's old. And there's the New Testament, which is a new thing. No, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old It's the old come to fruition. It's still all God's Word. One Word. From one God. And every ounce of it profitable for teaching and reproof. And you know what Paul said about that. And so he doesn't see two different things. He he doesn't see um, an old law, a law of God, and then a new law, a law of grace. It's all the law of God. Just one law. His Word. The Holy Scriptures. And so I believe from Genesis to Revelation, we have the Bible to establish humble faith. Isaiah 66, verse 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now again, don't misunderstand me. There is an old covenant... There are actually several covenants in the Hebrew Scriptures. One that was the conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and several other covenants God made with Israel. One-sided, unconditional covenants of God. And there's the new covenant by faith in Jesus' blood. There's a dispensation of law and a dispensation of grace. There's God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. 
But it's all the substance of one word, the word of God given to, again, establish humble faith in the hearts of those who will follow him. Just ask Abraham, or Abram, actually, at the time. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, (laughs) but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Quote, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, keep your finger in Romans 4 and let's go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. It is the second easiest book in the Bible to find. Genesis 15, which is the context of this direct quote by Paul in Romans 4, verse 3, where again he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so let's think about this for a second. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now now stop right there. After these things. After what things? Well, Abraham had just pulled off a brilliant rescue operation. Saving his nephew Lot, who'd been kidnapped. Saving him out of the midst of a five-by-five war of kings. Abraham, by night, stages this this, uh, surreptitious guerrilla attack with a crack squad of, get this, 318 of his servants. But they bolt in there, they rescue Lot, and they win the war. He routed the king of Elam, whose name was Cheddar Lamar, who's the king of cheese, and four other kings. And Abraham was remarkably victorious. It was as if he had just gone up against Donald Trump in Iowa. But apparently, upon returning to his Bedouin camp, the reality of what had just taken place for Abraham, Abram at the time, began to set in. And honestly, I think he was suffering from a little PTSD. Suddenly, fear enters his heart. It it didn't when he went charging off to save Lot. But now, all of a sudden, God says, Do not fear, Abram. Apparently, Abraham was unnerved. This often happens after military engagements. When the the time comes for reality to, again, set in. So here's Abraham, and, and, and he's shaking. And suddenly the Lord says, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Or, I like the translation better. It's probably more accurate to read. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm your reward. But I want you to notice something here. Just a little side note. If you didn't go through this all with us years ago, Genesis is a book of first mentions. It is filled with first-time things mentioned, again, for the first time in the Bible. And what's important about that is if you ever find a concept in Scripture that's hard to understand, if you can go back to the very first time it's mentioned, you get all kinds of understanding. 
For example, the first time the word love is used in the Bible is Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, take your son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the hill that I will show you. First mention of love, showing the depth of a father's love for a son he would sacrifice. You can see how that would ultimately parlay into the father's love for Jesus at the cross. So, the principle of first mention, it's throughout Genesis, and there are several first mentions right here that are worth mentioning. The first one is the word of the Lord in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. How does that work? How does a word come in a vision? I'll tell you how. When the word is made flesh. I believe what we're seeing here, now this is just my opinion, but this is a Christophany that Jesus showed up to Abraham. Remember back at the end of John chapter 8, Jesus does say, He saw my day and was glad. Abraham saw me, Jesus claimed. This may be that time or one of those times. It also may have just been in Genesis 14 when he ran into a guy named Melchizedek, another teaching for another time. But here we have the word of the Lord is seen by Abraham or Abram in a vision. That's the first time we see the mention of the word of the Lord. First time that phrase is used. And Jesus is the word. This is the first time we hear anywhere in scripture the use of the phrase, do not fear. Do not fear, Abram. It will be spoken 58 more times in the Old Testament alone. Do not fear, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And this is the first time the word reward is used in the Bible. The first time it's used, God says, it's me. I'm your reward. Now understand, at this point in Genesis 15, Abraham, or Abram, just coming off of this war of kings, took no spoils for himself. Oh, there were plenty of spoils, and he tithed 10% to this character I just mentioned named Melchizedek. But after that, Abram didn't keep anything. All of the spoils went back to the five kings who were fighting against the other five kings. Abram kept nothing for himself. He was being obedient to the Lord. Because the Lord told him not to take any spoils from battle, so he didn't. So here's Abram, he goes out, fights this amazing battle, rescues Lot, comes back, and he's got nothing to show for it. And the Lord says, I'm your reward. It's me. Hey, Abraham, I am your reward. By the way, the last mention of the word reward in the Bible is also instructive. When Jesus says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. So what do these two verses tell us? They tell us He gives rewards, and He is the reward. He gives rewards, and He is the reward. But Abram doesn't seem to get this. Not yet. He doesn't seem to understand that his reward is the Lord. And so he says in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? (laughs) Didn't you hear me, Abram? Are you reading a wrong translation? What did you miss here, bro? I am your reward. O Lord, what will you give me? And then he says, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of 
Damascus. And Abram said, Since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. How does a word come to somebody? You see the pattern here of the word of the Lord? It came to him saying, This man, this Eliezer, will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Verse 5. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Look at the stars, Abram. Just check it out. And I... We don't have the kind of starry night that they tend to have in the Middle East, and especially back that far, when there was no electric lighting, there was no smog, there was no pollution, there was nothing else to to dim the light of the stars. Can you imagine? Abram goes outside and he looks up, and the sky is just brilliant with stars. Carl Sagan once said there were as many stars in the sky as sand on the seashore. Carl Sagan wasn't the first person to come up with that. In fact, in Genesis 22.17, God says to Abraham at that point, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. But here's the point. As Abraham looked up at the stars that night, faith came. Faith came. Verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Question, what did Abraham do here? Answer, nothing. He didn't do anything. He was just standing outside, mouth agape, looking at the stars. And he believed. He just believed. Faith is that. Paul reaches all the way back to the patriarch Abram and says, there's the picture of faith. If you want to understand what faith is, it's not this puffed up, long-earned religious thing. It's just a guy looking at the stars believing that God's going to do what God said He's going to do. It is absolutely simple. Faith is a trust issue. It's just about trust. I've mentioned this a couple times recently, but but to me, this has been huge over this past year. Thinking about the fact that faith is just trust. Like you would trust a dear friend. Or you would trust the deception past bridge not to collapse under you on your way here tonight. Now I know many of you on your way home tonight are going to be thinking twice. (laughs) But we put trust in so many things without even giving it a second thought. And that's faith. That is faith. It's just trusting without second thought. Proverbs 3 verse 5. Solomon wrote, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Anyone know how the Deception Pass Bridge stays up? I mean, I know there are a few probably engineers among us who could start talking about it and we'd all fall asleep. I don't think about that. I don't know how it holds up. I know from looking this week, there are six or seven different major types of bridges 
different ways that bridges can be constructed, but I don't think about that. I don't lean on my understanding. I just trust it's going to stand. Proverbs 16.20, He who gives attention to the Word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Gang, that's Old Testament. That's not a new thing. God has been saying this from day one. Will you just trust me? Trust me. By the way, when was it that God did declare Abram to be righteous? It wasn't when he picked up and left Ur of the Chaldees. It wasn't when he finally settled there in Hebron, built a little altar to the Lord. God didn't at that point go, okay, now you're righteous. It wasn't when he fought the kings or tithed to Melchizedek. It wasn't when he obediently kept no spoils for himself. It wasn't even when he took Isaac up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. That wasn't when the Lord finally said, all right, we'll give him a few credits of righteousness. It was when Abraham believed. That's the point. And Genesis 15 is stunning, and Paul pulls this out to say, look, what was he doing? What is this righteousness based on? Nothing but trust. He just trusted that God was going to do it. That's the basis of godly righteousness that is given to you, given to me. Imputed righteousness comes because I simply trust Him. All right. I don't know how you're going to do it. I often don't know why you're doing it but I'm going to trust that you're going to do what you said you were going to do. I'm just going to believe you, God. For the first time in Scripture, in Genesis 15, verse 6, we get a glimpse of how highly God esteems faith. How big a deal it really is. Hebrews eleven seven. well, that tells us without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So by the time the Hebrew letter is written, we understand, okay, this is a big deal to God. But all the way back in Genesis 15, he shows us what a big deal it is. Earlier, Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, saying, Galatians 3 verse 8, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. The Gospel is an Old Testament thing. It was being preached all the way back since the beginning, gang. In fact, you can see the Gospel in Genesis 5. Y'all know that? You know that if you take the names of each of the people in those ten generations, take the meaning of the names, line them all up, it spells out in one sentence the Gospel. Not the word Gospel, it, it describes the Gospel. It's been proclaimed since the beginning. And so Paul writes that. He says it was preached, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Abram's story and the first mention of faith in the Bible is the backdrop to Romans 4. It's Paul's go-to biblical basis and the prime example that he uses of faith. Back to Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Notice this, his wage, wages. The word is misthos in the Greek, 
It's an important word. It means dues paid for work accomplished. Okay? Mistos. It's clock in, clock out, pick up your paycheck. And, and Paul, in describing this, says, hey, if, if you work, you don't get a paycheck by credit. You get it because it's due. You earned it. You, you deserve it. Look again to Abram. Did he earn anything? No, because he didn't do anything. Did God owe Abram a debt of any kind? Maybe a more personal question. Does God owe anyone anything? Now I see some heads shaking, but we live in a world that thinks God owes us something. We live in a world where people get mad at God because He does something that we don't like. And how dare you? We live in a world where people say, well, where was God when this happened? Or why did God let that happen? Or God, why don't you answer this prayer of mine? Or do this for me or that for me the way I want it to be done? Does God owe us anything? People sure act like it sometimes. And you know, if if righteousness was a debt that was owed to us, we might be justified in comparing ourselves to others. You know, I might be able to say, I'm a harder worker than Glenn. I put in more hours than Glenn. I know he's got that small group thing, but man, do you know how much I study versus how much he studies? Come on. If you want to talk about righteousness, (laughs) isn't that ridiculous? It's shameful, really. God doesn't get this. God does not remunerate righteousness. He doesn't give righteousness as a wage earned, as a debt owed. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't give wages. He does. It doesn't mean that God doesn't... Well, the word mistos, wages, is also translated reward. And God does reward. It is the exact same word that is used in Revelation 22.12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward, my mistos, is with me. So there are things earned. Please understand that. It's, it's a valuable, it's a wonderful thing to know. And in fact, James 1.17 says, Behold, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God gives gifts, but God also gives misos, rewards. And rewards are earned. Given because of a task done or a deed accomplished. And in His coming, the Bible's clear. There are gifts, there are rewards, there are crowns to be given based upon deeds done in faith. Remuneration for righteous acts. But righteousness itself is never remuneration. It is never payment. Some things are earned. Make make a very clear doctrinal distinction right now. Some things are earned by deeds done in the flesh. Righteousness is never one of them. Salvation is never earned. Salvation, the righteousness of God, this is a gift given and received, not earned. Other gifts are earned, but not that. God owes no one a wage of righteousness. Remember how Paul opened up the letter. Back in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith to faith. Not 
from faith to some good work. Not revealed by heavy labor. From faith to faith. And the righteous man shall live by faith. What is faith? I know it's a simple concept, or should be, simple trust. But as long as we're going to be talking about it and really entering into this doctrine, the word faith, get this down, it's a key word in New Testament doctrine. We've already covered the key words of justification and redemption and propitiation. Well, now you can add in faith. In fact, faith is already sprinkled in that bridge that we crossed on Sunday. Faith is pistis. Pistis in the Greek. Which means literally a state of certainty with regard to belief. You might say it's assurance. Conviction. It's trusting something with absolute assurance. As Paul wrote, Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Later, Paul says, Corinthians 5.7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith. Absolute assurance. And I think the best description of faith and what it looks like is what Jesus said when all the kids started showing up. We sang about it tonight. Faith of a child. He said in Mark 10.15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. I've spent years thinking about that one and I can tell you it's not playfulness that it's talking about. It's not innocence. I've now gone through six children. I can tell you they are not innocent. It's not creativity. It's not even wonder. And we sang about keeping our wonder, the wonder of a child. And that's good. And that's going the right direction. But ultimately, the faith of a child, a childlike behavior, is trust. You want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to do it like a kid. How does a kid go anywhere? By trust. They climb in the back seat, buckle up, and figure they're going to arrive where they're supposed to when they're supposed to. They don't think about where they're going, where they're turning. Now, as they get older, they'll say, Dad, aren't you going to turn here? (laughs) To which I say, Naomi, are you driving? (laughs) But when we're young, climb in the car and off you go. Trust. The trust of a child. Childlikeness, not childishness, by the way. We're not called to be childish. But we receive the kingdom of God like a child receives, believes, trusts in a parent. They don't know any better. They just trust. They just know. The children came to Jesus with nothing but trust. They saw in Jesus something that appealed to them, that drew them, and so off they went. And they didn't think about it. They just crossed the bridge. In verse 5, Paul says, But to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. Whoa, did you catch that? Who is it here in verse 5 that Paul says is justified by faith? Look at it. Huh? Someone said it just then. The ungodly... The ungodly. 
Am I reading that right? The one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly? His faith is credited as righteousness? Wait a minute. According to chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is poured out on who? The ungodly. Against all ungodliness and all righteousness, unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth. And here, marvelously, Paul says those who are most deserving of wrath are considered righteous by faith. By faith. The sinner who turns around and trusts in Jesus, the one who believes in who God is, not in what God owes them. And I think that's the turning point from verse 18 of chapter 1 to right here. The ungodly in verse 18 of chapter 1 are suppressing the truth. The ungodly in verse 18 of of chapter 1, they think God owes them something. But the ungodly that Paul mentions here in chapter 4 verse 5 suddenly realize God owes me nothing. i got to throw my life on the mercy of His court. I'm going to trust in Him. There's no reason to. I've done nothing to deserve this. But because He says so, I will trust in Him. And in chapter 5, Paul will say, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for, get it, the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ungodly. And all He asks of the ungodly person is not quit your drinking, stop your sleeping around, cut out your sin first. And then maybe we'll talk about righteousness. No, what he says is, trust me. And I do not believe it's radical or out on a limb to say the moment a person trusts in Jesus, regardless of all the sin that may be piled up in their life, the moment trust comes is the moment of salvation. And then God starts cleaning out the garage. You know, Then he starts going room to room in the house and, and showing us what needs to be cleaned out. He sanctifies the house. He cleans us up. But we have it so backwards the other way around and so we don't understand faith. And so 2,000 years of Christianity has taught us that faith is religion. It's my faith. I'm a person of faith. How do you know? I wear, I wear a tie. I have a suit. And a really big Bible. And I've memorized verses and I serve in my church. That's not faith. Those are deeds done in righteousness. Those can all be really good things, but it's not faith, gang. Faith is the moment of trust. When I say, yes, Jesus, I cannot cross this bridge. i got to trust you to get me there. Verse 6. Just as David also. So now he goes from Abram to David. Paul's pointing out, and I love it. It's all coming right out of the Hebrew Scriptures, gang. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. So Paul now goes to David and he teaches from this 32nd Psalm. And David should know something about sin, shouldn't he? It's interesting, and I don't know that we can nail down the exact timeline of the writing of every single one of the Psalms. Many of them, we have clues and hints of when David wrote them. You know, we know when he was in the caves hiding from Saul, that there were many Psalms he wrote in that setting, and we know in different seasons of his life. But Psalm 32 is in the earlier Psalms. And if you study through the Psalms chronologically, which they try to lay them out chronologically... If you do so, what you discover is very interesting. In the earlier Psalms, David writes like a divine teacher. In fact, uh, Psalm 32 is what's called a masculine. It's a teaching psalm. He's teaching about happiness through uh, not having our sin counted against us. How happy we are, how blessed. The word is makarios. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. What wonderful blessing there is where your sin has been taken away by the Lord. It's a teaching psalm. And so David is the instructor. He's the teacher. But long about Psalm 51, everything changes for David. Because Psalm 51, he writes not as a teacher, but as a student. Not as one expounding spiritual truth, but as one who has now experienced it for himself. Remember, David's self-righteousness really took a bath. (laughs) Sheba. (laughs) Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are companion psalms. The first, Psalm 32, is instructional on the blessing of forgiveness, but Psalm 51 is inspirational, declaring the blessing by experience. And so David could bring forth both. And David is the one who tells us, blessed is the person whose sin the Lord will not even take into account, or literally will not write into their account. He will keep no record of. Because where one is justified, there is no record. Where one is redeemed, there is no more slavery. Where the propitiation satisfies the wrath, blessed. Makarios, supremely happy. It's literally a word that that describes that state of blessedness. And by the way, Christians ought to be the most happy, joyful, contented people in all the world. Are you? If so, praise the Lord. If not, well, praise the Lord. And you will be. If not, why not? What's gotten in the way? Perhaps it's a heartache that you bear. You know, maybe it's a loved one that that you fear lost. Maybe it's a relationship that has collapsed. Put your trust in God. We come right back to this concept of faith. Simply trust. There are things, and the older I get, the more real this becomes to me. There are things in my life over which I have zero control. Three of them have moved out of my house. (laughs) 
No control. I can't tell Corey, Hannah, or Hayden what to do, how to do it. I I can give wisdom, (laughs) sound fatherly advice, but they got to take it. There are other issues, things that come up in my life, and and I I have no control. And I I understand. I'll walk in the door sometimes and just go, I don't know what to do with this, and I will be pacing and stressed, and then faith comes. And it's when faith comes that the makarios, the blessedness, returns. Sometimes I block that supreme happiness that really can be, should be mine in Christ Jesus. Because I've set aside trust to try and handle things myself. The Word of God tells us, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, look, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. And I start to talk like that, and you know what happens? Blessed. I'm blessed. But the key to that blessed state is trust. David was able to say, blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him because he trusted the Lord. Because when Natan the prophet came to him, exposed the sin for what it was. And when Natan then comes back to David and tells him the Lord still loves you, David believed him, trusted him. And so could write Psalm 51. Which again is a stunning hand-in-hand psalm to go with Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Gang, trust will not only get you across the bridge, but it will get you across the bridge in a supremely happy state. A state of blessedness. Verse 9, is this blessing then, Paul writes, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? That is, is it on the Jews or on the Gentiles too? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And he, great question. Paul takes the litmus test of Judaism and tears it in half and throws it away. Completely blows it out of the water. Why? Because he says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Hey, timing is everything. To the Jew, circumcision had become the litmus test, as we talked about, of righteousness. But the patriarch of all Israel was counted righteous before he was circumcised. Pre-litmus. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, (laughs) Gentiles, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, Jews, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Man, this guy's brilliant. And he just, he takes this whole concept that had been built up in Judaism as as one of the standards of their strength, as one of the arches of their bridge to get across. Remember what the three arches are. 
litmus test and lineage and law to the Jewish person. He takes the centermost standard and he just collapses it. It wasn't circumcision after all that saved you. That's not the deal. It's not how it works. He rightly argues something that many Jewish people had by this time forgotten. Circumcision was a sign and a seal of something God had already done. Just like baptism. Circumcision was not the credit of righteousness, it was the confirmation of the credit of righteousness. It simply was a physical way of confirming what was done. It was a sign and a seal. We have a sign and we have a seal, do we not? Baptism is the outward sign. Like circumcision, the outward sign of the inward work of God, the cleansing blood work of Christ, the propitiation of the cross, already done. Again, happening the moment my faith rests in Jesus. The moment I turn to Him and say, I trust You, Lord. Not based on anything I've done. I trust You. And in that moment of trust, it all comes together. Well, then I have the sign of baptism. Outwardly expressing to everybody... This is what God's done. This is the deal. He has immersed me. He has washed me. He's cleansed me. He did what I couldn't do. And now I'm going to do this because it reminds me of what He did and it tells you what He did. It's a sign. We also have a seal, don't we? Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So we have the sign and the seal, but it's all of something that happens by faith in what God has done. So Abraham was declared righteous pre-litmus and pre-law. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. In other words, all the law does is stir up wrath, because we can't keep it. All the law, ultimately perfect though it is, can do is condemn us. Because again, we're no good at it. And by the way, rules and regulations always do that. They may be a good idea, but ultimately they always condemn. They always stir up wrath. And by the way, not only the wrath of God. Law stirs up anger because nobody can keep it. Law is frustrating because our human inclination is not to follow the rules. Every last one of us. You ever say this? I'm a law-abiding citizen. Really? Are you? Are you sure? I guarantee you right now there's a law in the books in Washington State that you are not keeping. Perhaps one that you're rebelling against when you go two miles over the speed limit. It's your own personal, you know, civil rebellion. Well, okay, well, I keep all the right laws, though. I just don't keep the dumb ones. Ha! 
so you don't keep some laws. I discovered this one on Sunday night, that Washington state law requires those with septic systems to have them inspected annually. Yeah, it cost about 150 to 200 bucks, you know, uh, an inspection. We're supposed to every year. And do you know what the compliance is in Island County alone? <laughs> 20%. Two out of every ten people are having their septum, septic systems inspected. The rest of us are absolute haters of the environment. <laughs> so our septic system backed up on Sunday night. It's been three years since my last inspection. Anna Marie's bathroom is the lowest one in the house. You do the math. (laughs) The point is, all you have to do to cause someone to break a law is write one. It's that simple. Don't you think God knew that? Of course He did. It's why He planted the tree. Go back to the very beginning, Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And I can almost guarantee you Adam and Eve had never even noticed a tree until God pointed it out. It's that simple. Look, you guys, enjoy the garden. Everything I've given you, it's all for you. Don't go near that tree. Don't eat from that tree. That tree? Okay, no, no, we're good, Lord. We're good, we're good. We'll be over here. We are drawn to rebellion. And it would have been any one of us in the garden. All God had to say was one time, don't do this. And they were going to do it. Eventually, ultimately, because Romans 5.20 tells us the law came in so that the transgression would increase. All you got to get someone to do to break a law is write one. So here's the beauty of it. It is not law. It is not circumcision. It is not works. Verse 16. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants not only to those who are of the law Jewish people but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed that is God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The father of the faithful, Abraham. Now, you know, this is so cool. We were, the first time I went to Israel, and we go to this same location every time, and every time it is equally breathtaking to me. Up in the northern reaches of Israel, there's a path we take near Tel Dan, near a place called Banyas. And as we walk that path, we come around and down a hill, and if you look off to the site, there's this old archaeological dig. It's got this big mammoth covering over it to protect it because it is 4,000 years old. I may have mentioned it to you before. It's called the Canaanite Arch or Abraham's Arch. It is an archway that led into a city gate that was there 4,000 years ago. 
And we are almost absolutely sure Abraham himself walked through that gate. And the first time I saw it, I just stood there. And all I could think was, Abraham's a real dude. He's just a dude. He's no different than me. He stood here at one point. He walked through that gate. And then when we went down to the south, around Jerusalem and the hills of Judea, and the Lord told Abram, I want you to walk about all these hills, up and down and all over. Look, I'm giving it all to you. And, and we stood on those hills and, and I thought, Abraham stood here. He's a real dude. I know it's not rocket science. But you know what? What I'm saying here is, he's no different than I am. And when God said to Abram, this real dude, I'm going to bless you. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. This normal guy believed him. Faith. He just trusted him. It's remarkable to me. When God declared Abram righteous by faith, think about it. What exactly was it that he was asked to believe? Again, Genesis 15, verse 5, he took him outside, said, look toward the heavens, count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. That is, from your body, this many people will populate the earth. And beyond that, he was speaking spiritually, this many people are going to be saved through faith. Abraham looked at those stars and went, that many? I believe you. What if it had been you? Let me put a finer point on this. At the time that God said, so shall your descendants be, at the moment that Abraham believed and God credited to him as righteousness, he was 86 years old. His wife Sarai was 76 and barren. Apparently she was a beautiful woman, but childless and also 76 years old. Father of the faithful? You've got to be kidding me. You're going to make me a dad? I remember my reaction when Cheryl and I made the decision to adopt and I'm like... I'm going to have a one-year-old and I'm 44 years old. That was seven years ago. That's where the gray hair is coming from. <laughs> Genesis 15.6, Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And that is the proof text of faith. But 14 years went by and guess what? Nothing happened. What? I believed him. But it's been months. Well, I trusted the Lord to do this, but man, it's been days. Or for some of us, it's been hours since He said He was going to do this. Fourteen years. Abraham is now a centenarian. He's joined the ranks of those a hundred years old or older. By the way, centenarian advocate Lynn Peters Adler on Forbes.com back in August of 2013 said the majority of active centenarians say they do not feel their chronological age. On average, they report feeling 20 years younger. I wish I could say that. (laughs) But listen, 
Watch this, verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Genesis 15.5 Without becoming weak in faith, (laughs) he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, or as my friend Chris would often say, as good as deed, He's so old, he's as good as deed. Since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. We have here remarkable Holy Spirit insight into the mind and the heart of Abraham across 14 years of waiting. Across those 14 years, he never wavered in trusting the Lord. Now, there were a couple of bumps along the way. We'll call them baby bumps. (laughs) Baby bump number one was Sarah's influence. Sarah's at the time. In Genesis 16, she tried to take things into her own hands by handing over her handmaid into the hands of Abram. we got to make this work. Genesis 16, so the next chapter. didn't take long before Sarah's going, well, he told you you were to be the father of many nations. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not the answer to that. But Hagar's young, not altogether unattractive, Take her. And so baby bump number one, by Sarai's influence, Ishmael was born not of the grace of God, but of the effort of man. And that is never a good thing. Where the grace of God was promised, the effort of man was exerted, and what followed has been an everlasting enmity between Israel and Ishmael ever since. Still boiling in the Middle East today. What an example of what our works do when we try to force the hand of God to fit our timetable it never ends well yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength right they will mount up with wings like eagles they will run and not get tired they will walk and not become weary Isaiah 40 31 or Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3 the vision is yet for the appointed time it hastens toward the goal it will not fail though it tarries wait for it for it certainly will come it will not delay wait for it trust him faith can be exerted in waiting I know He's going to do it. Listen, I knew when we started the bridge, Jesus was coming and coming quickly. That was nearly 13 years ago. Has my faith in His coming wavered? Not in the slightest, because He said He's going to do it. And I do believe He will come quickly. So I wait. We wait for Him to fulfill what He promised He would fulfill. Don't force the hand of God. Don't try to make Him fit your parameters, your timeline, your paradigm for life. Because your thoughts are not His thoughts, nor are your ways His ways. 
Sarai's influence. But more time goes by, and there was a second baby bump, if you will. I'll call that Sarai's incredulity. Let me just read this to you. It's Genesis chapter 10, or chapter 18, verse 10. God has visited Abram. And he said, where's Sarai, your wife? And, or Sarah, your wife. And he said, there in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Now they're, Abram's a hundred. So Sarah would be ninety. 90 years old, ladies, think about that. You're 90 and God says you're going to have a baby. Excuse me? (laughs) And she's listening at the door. She's advanced age, past childbearing. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord, being old also? Which is Sarah's way of saying, Have you seen Abraham? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. She didn't get her hand to her mouth fast enough. (laughs) And he said... I love this. God says, no, but you did laugh. I heard you. Sarah's laughter. First Sarah tries to hand him the handmaid, and now she bursts out laughing. And next year, Sarah had a bouncing baby boy, born of her 96-year-old at that point, barren body, and the laughter of incredulity turned into the laughter of a joyful mama. How remarkable is that? And so they named him Isaac, which means little laughing boy. It does. Isaac means laughter. The laughter of the Lord. God always gets the last laugh, by the way. But here's the point. Abraham never wavered in his faith. Not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. He lied. He misrepresented There were plenty of areas where he he was a sinner. But he trusted the Lord. And God said, for that, he is righteous. He always believed that God would come through. Hebrews 6, verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. But this is where faith, to me, is the most profound. Where it really stirs. Look at verse 19 again. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. This is the best time for faith to be realized. When somebody is as good as dead. 
In verse 18, Paul calls this hope against hope. In verse 17, he calls God the one who gives life to the dead. Faith, trusting God, will not, cannot fail, does not collapse, even when you are as good as dead. You see, Jesus was dead. He wasn't just as good as dead, He was dead as a doornail. Or dead as a coffin nail. Shut in, the stone rolled over the tomb, laid there, wrapped up with over 100 pounds of pizza spices all on top of His body. He was dead. Verse 23, watch this. Now, not for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Do you see what Paul just did? He ties in the promise of life to Abraham, a dead man walking, to the promise of resurrection through Jesus Christ to all of us dead people walking. As Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's Ephesians 2 verse 6. Seated us. These are nice chairs. But these are not the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You need to understand, when Paul writes that he seated us in the heavenly places, that you can trust that. It is so absolutely sure that Paul writes it as though it were already a past tense thing. As though we already sat down. As though we have already arrived in heaven, because as far as God is concerned, we have. Trust that. And Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember what Jesus told Thomas? He shows up there, this is now a week out from the resurrection, and he says to Thomas, who had just cried out, My Lord and my God, Jesus says, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. The blessing of faith. Simple trust. We were as good as dead. Not anymore. I was the ungodly dead. And I trusted Jesus. And I became alive in Christ. Do you believe that? This is not a shaky bridge. It is the most solid, sure foundation, uh, uh, the most certain bridge of all eternity. And crossing it is simply a matter of saying, Jesus, I trust you. Wow. And once you do, the grace of God explodes. It gets all over you. Isaiah 51 verse 1. The prophet writes, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him and I blessed him. And I, the Lord says, multiplied him. He was as good as dead. Look at what God did 
to Abraham. And Jesus said in John 8, 39, If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. What are those deeds? Trust the Lord. Father, we have faith in You. I pray again that You increase our faith tonight. Expand our faith, Father. It's such a simple thing. Help us to not overthink it, to not religiousize it, Father, to not get all legalistic in our mentality, but to trust You. Father, You have have shown again and again that where we trust You, You sanctify. That all the mess of our lives, You work in, You clean up, You restore. You have called us to be a people who are unwavering in simple trust. And so tonight, we declare You to be Lord and Savior. We declare and we know, Lord Jesus, that the propitiation of Your blood is for all people, for anyone who simply puts their trust in You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.